The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for June 17th, 2022. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. We've got some primary results in this week, and there's enough evidence that I really want to talk about a trend, a trend we are noticing in the post-Trump Republican Party. Do you have to bend the knee? Do you have to be a servile puppy or do you just need to not be openly offensive to the electorate for which you are courting the votes and is going against Donald Trump directly that exact brand of offense? We will discuss all that because I think we now have some emerging evidence to make some conclusions. Also, the Federal Reserve raised the rate by three quarters of a point. This is something that has not been done since 1994. We take a look back at the political consequences of what happened then. And finally, we'll be joined by the one, the only David McRaney of You Are Not So Smart. He's got a new book out, How Minds Change. We discuss propaganda, the political implications of all of it, and whether or not Politicians have been far ahead social science on this particular field of research for, well, centuries. All that. Bird Let's tell you a little tale about two races in South Kakalaki. The first one is going to be Tom Rice. See, now, Tom Rice voted to impeach Donald Trump after the January 6th brouhaha. He has been very anti-Trump. He has been boldly out in front saying that he has to draw a line somewhere and supporting that man is on the other side of where he wants to be. And as of last night, he's also going to be out of Congress. He lost to Russell Fry in his congressional race, and it was a a real uh, ass-whipping. Fry up 51.1% of the votes, Tom Rice 245 percent of the votes. Now, let me compare you to someone else. Let me tell you about Nancy Mace. Nancy Mace is also running for Congress in South Carolina. Nancy Mace also criticized Donald Trump for January 6th. Nancy Mace was running against a Trump-endorsed candidate in Katie Arrington. And yet, 
Nancy Mace won her race, 53.1% of the votes to Arrington's 45.3. So what's the difference? Well, number one, Mace didn't cross the line and vote for Trump's ouster. Number two, Nancy Mace has done what many of the successful Republicans who are not on Trump's Christmas list have done, which is they have done something to fall out of favor with Trump world, and then they just kind of shut up about it. They didn't take the bait. They didn't say anything nasty about Trump. Indeed, let me remind you that we covered very closely the Brian Kemp election in Georgia. Brian Kemp is loathed by Donald Trump, and yet, whenever asked about it, Kemp said, he's got a lot of bad things to say about me, but I don't have a single bad thing to say about him. Let's also take a look at Brad Little of Idaho. That was an absolute S-storm of a primary. You might remember that Janice McGeechan, his lieutenant governor, would routinely change laws when he physically left the state, only for Little to come back and undo the decisions that McGeechan made. McGeechan was hardcore Trump and indeed scored that endorsement. And yet, Brad Little beat the brakes off her 52.8% to 32.2%. The key in all of these is that you can offend Big Chungus, but you do not draw a line in the sand and say, he is bad and I will never support him. Because at the end of the day, Donald Trump is still the most popular man in the Republican Party. But I do think that it goes further. Here's why. Over the last six years, the Democrats have talked about one issue over everything else more consistently than COVID, gun control, abortion, Ukraine, and anything else you could possibly think of. That one singular issue is Donald Trump. If you are a Republican, and you are spending time denigrating and criticizing Donald Trump, then what you are doing is signifying to anybody who might vote for you that you are acting exactly like the opposition. Now, it's not to say that, as we have noted here, there's not room for disagreement. There is a penalty to pay, however, for self-sabotage. And that's what came for Rice. That's what's going to come for Liz Cheney. If you are acting indistinguishable from a Democrat, at least on this one issue for which has been their favorite, then you will eventually have to pay the piper. Politico's playbook went into this. Uh, in their uh, deep dive podcast, they talked to South Dakota rep Dusty Johnson. He said, there are going to be times that uh, votes cause you political discomfort. Don't run away from them, but also don't run away from the, from the electorate either. 
And that's, I think, what the, the, the crucial thing here is, is at the end of the day, if you are of either one of these parties, you have to understand that if you're going to get elected, you're going to get elected because voters from those parties put you in those positions. And while Donald Trump is certainly continuing to be an absolute unignorable enigma for which nobody is particularly super comfortable in handling and one who shifts positions uh, like the wind, if you are not specifically antagonizing him or playing into his game or sounding like somebody on MSNBC sounds, then you should be okay. And indeed, you can survive a direct attack and challenge from the man himself. On Wednesday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates three quarters of a point. That is the largest such hike since 1994. So, what do you say we throw our Lisa Frank Trapper Keeper into our Jan Sport, strap on our roller blades, drain a Capri Sun, and head back to those halcyon mid-90s days? What happened? When the Fed rose that exact same amount in 1994. Well, stepping out of the time machine, we had a new Democratic president who was two years into his term. Look at that. That's something that's similar. This one was the hope of a new generation. The bridge to the 21st century. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Sure, he's a bit young, but at least he'll have a stable of veteran Democrats to help him out. You know, like old Joe Biden in the Senate. I kid, I kid. They're only like four years apart. Anyway, the economy is growing, but at that moment, inflation is looming. Alan Greenspan of the Federal Reserve raised interest rates six times that year in 1994. And by the way, it's something that the Democrats were not particularly fond of. No. Not only did the president start to distance himself from Alan Greenspan, but the Fed chairman got hauled in front of Congress by the Democrats so he could explain exactly why he was attempting to kill the growing economy. But the largest of those increases is the quarter, the, the, the three quarter point increase. And that comes in November of 1994. At that time, it had been the largest increase since 1981, just to give you a sense of how rare this action by the Federal Reserve is. By the way, that decision was not met with universal acclaim. I'm going to quote a story from the Philadelphia Inquirer that was written then. As the Fed committee yet, uh, met yesterday, more than 65 protesters representing farmers, consumer groups, the unemployed, and the AFL-CIO labor group denounced a rate uh, increase outside the Fed building. They were hoping Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan would hear them, waving signs that read, Greenspan just doesn't care, and hey, Greenspan, up yours. The protesters insisted higher rates would cost them more jobs and squeeze their mortgage payments to unbearable levels. By the way, the mortgage borrowing rate then was 8.5. Right now, I believe we are at an average of, this is before the rate hike, but 5.5 to 6.5 was about the average. 
So we are below that. Look. I don't know about the stock market, all right? If you're looking for stock tips, please, for the love of God, look somewhere else. I am not your man. However, I do think that the point of this is to slow the economy down. The question is whether or not the inflation metrics for which are hurting people the most, food and oil, are even controllable by the Fed. Now, sure, you could say that the Fed should have done some of this economy cooling a little earlier, maybe even last year. Slight little dings like Greenspan did in 1994 before you try to bring the hammer down. But we're not in that world. We're in this one. Inflation is not transitory. Inflation is not plateauing. Inflation is indeed continuing to increase. Can this move get it under control in the soft landing perspective as opposed to putting us in to a deep, dark recession? That is going to be the big question. But without any kind of economic experience, I'm going to tell you right now. It seems to me like we are going very much into some dark economic times. When that happens and how long it lasts will without a doubt have an effect on both the midterms and the general election in 2024. Especially if you are thinking about running against Donald Trump, who can effectively just run on, are you better now or four years ago? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of this podcast. Uh, You know, let me me, uh, just put this out here because I've gotten an email from a friend of mine who is a, a $10 supporter of this show. And I, I love and appreciate big shout out to uh, Severio who I've known since high school, but he just randomly had his Patreon knockoff, right? It just, just turned off. And so he had to go back and he had to reset stuff up and everything. I don't know how much of, you know, my monthly churn. So people drop off. Some people drop, uh, you know, uh, come on. I don't know how much of that is because of stuff like this. Mechanical issues with Patreon that just knock people off. But I will say this. If you are a $3 club member or a $10 tier member and you are owed these bonus podcasts that come out every Monday and every Thursday and you just haven't noticed And maybe you thought, oh, well, maybe Justin's taking a break. Justin doesn't take breaks, okay? Even when I'm out of the country, you guys are going to get new stuff. So please, do me a favor. Double check to see whether or not you are still on the Patreon. And if you would like to join, boy, would we love to have you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you go. $3 tier gets you two bonus episodes each and every month. Each and every month. Jesus. Each and every week. Each and every week, ladies and gentlemen. 
You double your podcast output. You make sure you don't miss any breaking news. Right there. Without a password. You just put a custom RSS feed in the podcatcher of your choice. It's just that simple, friends. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Persuasion, propaganda, everything that goes in to the dark arts of the issue that we love and cover exclusively on this show, politics, politics, politics. But what is the science behind it? How are we persuaded and how did we learn to be persuasive? All of this is the subject of a brand new book by a brilliant man by the name of David McRaney. He is the host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast as well, and he joins us right now. Welcome back to the show, David. Oh, my God. I am very happy to be here. Uh, Already, we had to start late already because um, pre-microphone talking, I can't stop just blabbing about whatever comes to mind. So you've got me in a good state. I actually slept. (laughs) I have coffee in me. Uh, Let's go. (laughs) You are grinded, man. Like uh, 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 You have a new book coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 please tell everybody uh, the name of the book and where to buy it. Cause that is going to be the point of this entire interview. It's uh how minds change. I went, I, I have a physical copy in my hands, how minds change the surprising science of belief, opinion, and persuasion by me, David McRaney. It comes out June, June 21st, 2022. If you're hearing it after that date, you can just click a couple buttons on your computer. If you are hearing it before that date, you get three pre-order bonuses for getting the book. You get, I'm doing a live workshop over Zoom. You can, you get a ticket to that Q and A and all that kind of stuff. A one and a half hour uh, roundtable roundtable video that we put together with five persuasion experts and a quick sheet. You get a sheet with some of the big ideas in the book, and you also get a a guide toward a ethical form of persuasion that's mentioned in the book. Which actually, uh, I came to your uh, neck of the woods to learn more about it. I came to San Antonio to learn about street epistemology. So that's all in the book. So there's my big uh, plug. Where where can people pre-order? Where can people pre-order? Anywhere. It's literally on every single service from Kobo to Amazon to to everything. Powell's to Books a Million, all of them. Got you. And you are an author. And it is very important that authors respect all different outlets equally. I am going to say... That Amazon matters a lot. The Amazon charts matter a lot for sales. If everybody is listening to this, go to Amazon right now and pre-order the book because pre-ordering also is where you chart in in any places that do do like charts. Pre-order, yeah, yeah, pre-order, yeah. pre-order, pre-order. Go right now and do that. Thank be, you so be much. A, be it a feels friend so weird. to your author. Thank you. It feels so weird to tell people that over and over again because I feel like I just need to tell you the reason you hear all this pre-order stuff from people is that all the robots that scan things and tell everybody what to do and think and feel look at the first week sales that's for video games that's for movies that's everything. for books it's for everything yeah so yeah. that's so, why uh, that's why uh, you hear ahead. so much of that Go ahead and do that. And that's why we plug it up front because David is a good guy and we want his book to succeed. How minds change. Yes, sir. What brought you to this and and uh, uh, how long have you spent researching and writing it? I spent about six years on it. Um, the, it's because the ideas behind it changed and I changed as it, it was being put together, as I was exploring it, as I was investigating it. Um, 
if you've listened to my podcast, you've heard some of the guests who have changed the trajectory of the book over the years. Um, the original idea came from, I is two things, two things happened at the same time. One was I had this thing. You were not so smart for so long. And a lot of what I would tell people was, uh, you can't change certain people's minds. There's a lot of conspiracy theory content in the show. And I was at a lecture and someone asked me about their father was a birther, which this was way, way, way before the Trump stuff. This is uh, Obama is president at the time. And uh, although Trump is was part of the birther thing, but her father had gone all the way into he was like a reptile from you know another planet kind of conspiracy theory. And she's gotcha. like, what can I do to reach out to my father? And I told her you can't. And I and I even felt it as I said it. It was like locking your car, your keys in your car. I was like, I don't know. I don't like that I said that out loud. I don't know if I feel that truly. And then there's also the same period of time in which same-sex marriage in the United States, the norms and attitudes around it shifted dramatically. And I had been part of the media as a, as a print journalist and then as a TV journalist, I had been seeing the arguments people were having about same-sex marriage every single day. And it was just as contentious as any wedge issue. It just as contentious as gun control arguments are right now while we're recording this. I mean, yeah, and, there, there is there is an argument to say that uh, the 2004 election was, uh, or maybe it was one of the, the midterms there, that, that 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 was the big the big wedge issue was was let's let's fight about uh, gay marriage versus civil unions versus blah, yeah. Blah, blah. It's hard to, in the, in your current, in our current sociological landscape, it's doesn't seem like that could have ever been like something like gun control, but it, it, it was. It is, it, it, is, it is hard to imagine as I retweet Raytheon's pride flag tweet, uh, that there was once a time <laughs> where gay marriage Truth. was a, a visceral uh, wedge issue. Yes. It, it was so contentious and people argued using the exact same tech tactics and techniques with the same anger on both sides. And then it felt like if you weren't in the activist community that was working on this, or you had not been in the LGBTQ community for the decades of hard work that went into it, it felt like it just happened overnight. Like everybody was against this. It was something that nobody would change their minds about. And then bip, everybody's minds changed. And now we, now it's the laws change and the Supreme court says this, and we live in a different world. And then the arguments dissipate. And I was so fascinated by that because it seemed like it was a counter argument to my argument that arguments don't work at all. So I looked into the research. I've had Hugo Mercier come on my show and he told me all about, uh, yeah, there's people's minds change quite readily, quite commonly and under certain conditions and he told me to take a look at some of the other issues in, in American history, things like uh, Vietnam suffrage, marijuana laws, and, and about a dozen other things. And they all had the same pattern. Decades and decades of status quo. Then over the course of about 12 years, rapid, super accelerated shifts in attitudes. And then a flip in which the majority of uh, for, from four goes to against or against goes to four. And then the aftermath, everyone wonders how they could have ever seen this any other way. And it looked like something in biology called punctuated equilibrium, which is this, something a very similar process that happens in species where you have this very long period of status quo and then something in the environment shifts and the bodies and the structures of the organism change. And you see it all throughout the record. So I just wanted to understand that. And I embarked on a journey to do so. And it took years and years of research on the ground to get an idea of what was going on in people's brains, and then working up from neurons all the way to social change. 
So when 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 you give examples like that, where you are are looking at polling, and that that is obviously the only way that we can look at large scale uh, opinion changes, no matter how flawed you might find the practice. I do wonder whether or not people's hearts or minds changed or they decided that they wanted to talk about it publicly or say it to a pollster. My, my, my gut instinct is to say that people were probably cooler with gay marriage than they would want to tell their friends or family for a long sure. time before all of a sudden it became quote unquote safe to say it. And now that's why you see the very accelerated change because there, there was already a bedrock there. Yeah, but it's the same thing. Like that is also, that's what changing your mind is like what uh, they change their people who are in that category, change their willingness to express their opinions in front of other people. So something changed their mind in that regard, but it's uh, I learned in researching the, all of this and spending time with scientists who study it, that there are, that is just one portion of the population. So there's one portion of the population that is somewhat okay with the idea of the norm changing, but they're not okay with expressing it in front of other people because of the social costs they might incur. There's another community of people who really are true believers and they really, really are not, are not okay with this. And they're really, really ready to carry a picket sign or go so far as to burn down a building. If it takes, if it takes it, then the, it's all, this all goes into network uh, theory and cascade uh, research, but you have, it's the same thing with like COVID. Like, like there were people who were extremely hesitant and then little less hesitant and little less hesitant. So you get to get this wide spectrum of attitudes related to the norm. And each of those groups affects the other groups. And if you can, if you can instigate a change that allows the less hesitant people or the people that have the slightly weaker negative attitude about a change, if you give, if you instead of change that allows them to proclaim that in a way that shows that they can signal that they're willing to do to get on board, and then they also don't suffer any social calls for doing so, that expands the pool of examples for people who are a little more hesitant or, or a little more negative than them. They some of those will slough off. They become part of the signal pool, and you get a avalanche cascade of change in those situations. So, what are the triggers then? Uh, what 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 is the 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 Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer group of 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 society <laughs> that moves things either forward or backward? It's different for everything. It's, it's so context dependent, and it's so there's so many variables at play that this became one of those elements of psychological research that was just a tremendous mess up until the 1980s. The all starting in the 1940s. Uh, following uh, the success of Nazi propaganda, the United States, uh, all the social sciences in the United States, many of them were employed by the U.S. government. They started jumping into this world, trying to understand, well, okay, what makes a message persuasive? What makes an uh, a, what causes someone to become a uh, the type of individual that could move large groups of people to behave in a certain way. There were all these concerns, obviously, after World War II, after the Nazis, like, how did this happen? And you had all these different things that came out of it. If you get a, even today, a Psychology 101 course features lots of research from that era because, and that was motivated by, hey, how come the Nazis were like this? The <laughs> um, 
Which I can imagine when you're when you're only getting, you know, uh, newsreels and uh, one (laughs) newspaper a day and all of a sudden a a, a country is like, oh, oh, really? Wow. Okay. I mean, I guess another world war figured we just wrapped one up. But uh, uh, wow, that's pretty crazy. And I guess uh, uh, I didn't even realize that, that contemporaneously it wasn't just a historical thing that looked at, okay, well, this unlike other wars, unlike other things for which you could say the tectonic plates moved economically or, or through famine or through ancient, uh, 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 old, old rivalry that, that the Nazis were even then contemporaneously looked at as, Oh no, they were extraordinarily persuasive. And, and Goebbels is elevated to this large pedestal. Yeah. And there's a, even at the time there was debate as to, was were they just were, were the Nazis tapping into something that was already available to them and magnifying it, or did they create something uh, you know from scratch? Did was the propaganda successful, or was the propaganda there just to uh, give people a feeling of safety to uh, expose their own prejudices in public? There's all these debates at the time, and there's there was an attempt to create a sort of an American version of this. Which was there was a they really really did not want to call it propaganda. They did they try to in all the literature they avoid that word quite a bit, but they created these uh, films called the uh, Why We Fight series. You can still watch them on YouTube. Yep. And Disney did the animation, and you had all these famous directors like uh, Frank Capra was the director, and mm-hmm. they employed all these people to do this work, and they put a lot of money into it and they're really rousing. You know, the shows like uh, the question at the beginning is why do you, why are we fighting? And they show all the things that are happening. World War II, all these places being bombed, these tanks rolling through cities. And then they show all that and they say, is it this, is it this, is it this? And then finally at the end of it, they say no. And then they show lighthouses of freedom. Like they start with the statue of Liberty and they show all the other places. They even show like Greek history and stuff. And they say, this is why you fight. This is a, the beacons of freedom will be put out around the world unless you join the war. And then it was so, it seems so amazing and so effective that they asked the social scientists today, like test this out and tell us how it works. And they used, they showed it to uh, people who were in like boot camp and stuff. And they found that what was the bizarre split in the research was that there were all these common misconceptions in the public opinion space at the time they wanted to squash things like, the um, the British weren't doing their the, the British were being lazy and they weren't trying very hard and we were going in to save them. Ideas like the Nazi war machine was very small and the war would be over in two weeks, stuff like that. Yeah. When they when they showed them these films and they and they they did their research afterward, asking what they got out of it, they found that people's factual factual beliefs were updated afterwards. They they said, okay, I was wrong about that piece of information. Thank you. But anything that was related to their opinion didn't change at all. And there was like less than a 0.001% change in their, and they didn't use this word quite yet, but it was their attitudes related to it. And that led to the next, you know, 50 years of research. It created, there was something that was created out of that called the Yale Attitude uh, Change Project and all these other things in academia to try to understand, okay, it looks like beliefs, attitudes, values, opinions, norms, and all these things they are not interchangeable words and what works on one will not work on the other. And in fact, sometimes a message that does a great job of changing people's fact-based beliefs 
will mm. either not change their attitudes or it will actually make the attitude we're trying to change stronger. Yeah. And so that led to, and I, I talk about this at length in the book, it led to something called the elaboration likelihood model. So it, as a weird long answer to your original question, it was like, what is Re- Rudolph's red nose thing in all of this? Yeah. It's the, um, that was, that question is why it was so hard to find an answer. Cause it turns out it's about a thousand things. And if you mix them up in different ways, you get different results. And the way we discovered this was two researchers, Petty and Cassiopo, they rented a house off campus in grad school and they painted the one of the rooms in blackboard paint. And at the time to get your degree in that, the domain of social psychology, persuasion research, you had to memorize the results of all the studies because they there was no unifying theory. And so they just wrote all the studies around the room in chalk and used, tried to figure out, try to memorize it that way. And in so doing, they started having this sort of beautiful mind moment of going, oh, wait, actually, there is a pattern here. And they created something called the elaboration likelihood model, which is the more likely you are to elaborate, uh, the more likely the added, the more likely the message will persuade you. And you can go off on two uh, paths. There's the peripheral cues and uh, central cues, the uh, peripheral route and the central route. Peripheral cues are things like, is the speaker attractive? Is there pizza after this? Um, <laughs> is, uh, did, did they present 25 arguments? Because that's a very simple cue. For the central route is different. It's like, what's the strength of this argument? Where's the, what is the expertise of this person and so on? So that an elaboration is the, the likelihood part is how likely are you going to do this, which is all modulated by whether or not you have slept or you've eaten or you care about the issue or you know a lot about the issue or it will affect you or you have to repeat it afterwards. And the, the elaboration part is the best way I've had elaboration described to me, which was by Petty himself, is uh, if you see a commercial that says this soap, it will make you smell like flowers. Some people will think, well, I don't want to smell like flowers. I yeah. hate smelling like flowers. So not buying your soap. Whereas another person will think, oh, that's fantastic. I've been looking for a soap like that. So same message, different elaborations. And but as hard as this is to believe, before we had this model, the, the assumption was, I just need to make it easy for the person to learn. Like if you want to say, buy my cigarette, just make the ad memorable. But yeah. it turns out you need to find a way to connect to the person's values, which that idea of connecting to a person's values is a fresh new concept that we are familiar with, but it's very new when it comes to uh, persuasion research. So that's, and you that's see that, and, 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 and you see that all over in terms of political advertising, where where mm-hmm. you know just even the the form and function of the ad, how slickly it's done, how uh, uh, new and fresh the fonts are, uh, are are mm-hmm. a part of the language that appeals to certain demographics that you want to turn out. I think I've kind of gotten my answer from your from your previous answer, but uh, I, I I am curious when it comes to changing minds how where is the line between what is hard coded into us like hardware wise every human on the planet is motivated by you know food uh uh, uh survival and 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 the health and well-being of their kids let's say and and what then ascends beyond that and is in play differentiated by our cultures like like that you would have an easier way convincing an american 
of X, Y, or Z than you would a German or a, a, a Chinese or Japanese audience. Like, <laughs> is there is is there is there a strata there, or or is everything uh, affected by culture? Everything's affected by culture, sure, but. The fact that you we are affected by culture is nurture. So like, like there's a nature nurture argument that is kind of funny to people who study this to that we even have this argument. That would have that, been a way faster way to answer the, ask that question. What is the difference <laughs> between nature and nurture? <laughs> okay. This is this is one of those questions that is irrelevant in a certain framing. And I and I find that absolutely super compelling and I'm obsessed with it. Because the I the thing is. The fact that we produce culture and that culture affects us is an element that occurred thanks to the pressures of natural selection via evolution. So our nature is what produces our capacity for nurture and, all, and, and therefore culture is also an element of our biological makeup. So there is no difference between nature and nurture. Nature and nurture are a, a combined process and your capacity for both creating and, and being affected by culture is something that you receive from biology. So therefore, nurture is nature. So that being said, the way most human brains work is that you come into the world with propensities. And those propensities are then shaped and, and they're sharpened and softened by uh, the cultural environment that you come, come into. Of the things you were talking about, those basic motivations and drives, there's one that's almost maybe stronger than all of them. And that is your motivation to be a good member of your group. We are ultra social primates. We're not just social primates. We're ultra social primates. We care more about what other people think of us than almost anything else. Uh, as my good friend, Will Storr says, we're, we come into the world playing a, a status game, but we're not just playing it. We are that game. So we are more concerned with demonstrating to our peers that we are a good member of the group, a useful member of the group. We're more concerned with avoiding shame and ostracism than we are even our own like livelihood. We, we, would, we will sacrifice ourselves for the group and we will do things that might uh, guarantee that we're going to not make it out of this if it, look, it improves our reputation. So that, that, reputation that, explains a lot about, that explains a lot about Twitter. That's it does. It explains a lot about just about everything that makes us like go, why in the world are, are people doing this? Right. Yeah. The, and we're all doing it. Like people on both sides are doing it. So when it comes to the way we create arguments and discuss things with other people and changing minds and resistance, when we are reasoning in psychology, in psychology, reasoning is, is just coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe for the purpose of reputation management in the sense that you will come up with arguments that seem rational and justifiable to your most trusted peers, because you're thinking that when I produce this, this is how they're going to react to it. And none of this stuff is really conscious. The notice we don't really articulate much of this. It's not, we have, they call it the introspection illusion of psychology. We're not really aware this, this process is taking place. So all the most powerful persuasion techniques are those that, disregard people's conclusions and avoid using facts and figures and don't try to appeal to people from a logical standpoint. They instead try to help you work the person back to discovering the raw motivations for what it is that they're presenting as an argument. Because most of the time what happens is, let's say you're, uh, 
an anti-vaxxer, either pre-COVID or post-COVID. Either you're a COVID anti-vaxxer or you're a um, uh, a MMR anti-vaxxer. Yeah. You ask a person like, why do you feel that way? And they'll produce reasons like, well, it, ca- it causes autism or this, you can't trust big pharma or uh, Bill Gates is putting microchips in there. There's all these, these standalone reasons that people will produce. But those reasons are just justifications for an attitude that, that is driving, that was driving their pursuit of justification later on. So what you have is this visceral negative affect that a person experiences when they think about that issue. And then they go online looking for justifications for their, uh, for having that emotional reaction, things that would be seem like a reasonable justification for this level of anxiety. And then they cherry pick the evidence and find things that seem to support that that that, that, that argument. And then that becomes. I, 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 I feel the like reason. I feel like you've 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 also just explained every piece of media that <laughs> headlines begin with the term "actually." Mm-hmm. Like it's just like you know, actually the thing that you think that seems to be unpopular right now is actually true, and and, right. and you know reasons why your personal beliefs are justified. One right. through five. And we all we're all doing this. And then when we if we face off against each other in a place where we were, were hoping to persuade the other side to see things more like we do, whether we're trying to change a fact based belief or an attitude or a value, we often do battle at the level of these reasons, these cherry picked justifications. Yeah. And it will not work. It just will never work because you're asking the other person to to consider evidence with the same reasoning process that you did. And and instead, you don't have what I call in the book cognitive empathy for the fact that they had no, this just happens to us. We have no choice in this. This is, this is a process. This is no different than bumping your knee on a, on a coffee table and and feeling pain. This is something that happens to us without, not by choice and without an awareness, without a metacognition for it, it's very difficult to get in there and, and make other choices. So any, all these persuasion techniques that we talk about toward the end of the book, are ways to help guide another person toward that. And it's really avoiding the I'm right, you're wrong framing of a debate. Instead, it's a conversation that helps solve the mystery of what do you think it is we would disagree on this? And the surprising answer often is something much more fundamental than the proposed reasons that people put out as the justification for why they feel a certain thing. Electorally, is there a, a person or era, if, we, if we're going to define the modern world of this science as post-World War II, is, is there somebody for whom your, your research has pointed to as, as a politician that was the forefather of like, okay, let's take these modern ideas of changing attitudes and, and, and targeting certain people and pushing them in a certain direction uh, that that has brought us to the level that we are now in our modern political system, or is that hard to say? You mean brought us to someone who would agree with everything I just said, or someone who's doing the opposite? Somebody. So, well, yeah, I would say I would say you know I I would imagine that if the entire world of social science uh, was learned a lot past World War II and then had a a specific focus on what is persuadable propaganda. What oh, yeah, motivates yeah, yeah. people? What hardens the opinions that we do want to change? What softens the opinions that we do want softened? Uh, if there is any like line in the sand of, well, these people did it and 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 these people uh, did not, or maybe <laughs> or maybe uh, politicians sure. have just kind of always 
that the art of politics has always been on the forefront of this because that's their yeah. job is persuading people. This is very similar to like, you know, multiple domains in academia and and in business will often uh, wander into the same truths because they're all working. They're all, they're all A-B testing and they just want to yeah. go with what works and they throw away what doesn't. Uh, so, yeah, politicians in some places have already been doing this forever uh, for, th- for a thousand years. And then on top of that, every insight that comes out of social science that can be applied to a political campaign, there are think tanks that are offering that to every politician, especially at the high level, especially at the presidential level. Uh, So it's a strange answer there. I would say on one hand, there isn't, there is not, there has not yet been a, a, a large, not to my knowledge, there's not yet been a prominent political figure who is, done this in a purely benevolent way it's always been for the sake of just get out the vote and get as many of them because that's their job it's like like like, oh there's been no miner who's mined benevolently it's like no he's he's mining so he can get a check (laughs) then i would say not to, to there have been some politicians that after the fact when they had to get into disagreements with their own party or disagreements with with people within their legislature who they're making it hard for them to actually do the things they said they were going to do or that they want to do. That's when they become very concerned with, okay, well, how do I actually talk to people? So some people employ this well and some don't, but I have watched every single person, even the ones that you would think are the very progressive, very science friendly politicians, absolutely step in it over and over again by committing the worst mistakes you can make. The worst mistake you can make in any kind of dialogue with people who disagree with you is to suggest that where they're at right now, is a reason is something they should be ashamed of is to say yeah. that if you open by saying what you think, feel, or believe is something you ought to be ashamed to think, feel, or believe. And you might not say that outright. You might not even intend to say that, but if it's interpreted that way, it's over. They eventually go into us versus them thinking, and it's, you're done for, you're no longer somebody they can trust in a zombie apocalypse after that. They're like, you've already told me you've ostracized me. You're shaming me. And I, I, one particular figure, I, I think we all recall uh, called a entire group, group of people um, deplorable for having certain uh, values. A and basket. She put she put them in a basket of deplorables. Yes. That, I mean, I just imagine that you are on the other side of that, and you were told that about whatever you you cannot help but feel strongly about. It's over. Like you might uh, that might create twenty thirty years of I will never ever ever support anybody who would ever support that person after that. Well, I think that one that one was a fascinating one, and I think you've seen it again with the ultra MAGA stuff that Biden is 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 using or has used. That I don't know if he stopped. Uh, where they the the group for which they were describing already had very negative feelings toward them, and if anything, there was almost a jubilation from that group where it was one part probably a primal relief of thank God you said it, you said it out loud and, and in a way that I think is probably close to how you would say it to your friends. This is the most sure. honest thing that, that so in one way it was like almost a rewarding of, of honesty, like to this person that they found to be dishonest. And then it was like, Oh, if you think that that's bad, then I cannot wait to print 40 t-shirts and give them to all my friends because <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's, that's really exciting to me. And you've seen that with, with, with both of those things, but I think you're right. And if, if, if you are saying a thing where it's not only turning people off, it's also uh, uh, 
going to to embolden or harden mm-hmm. certain positions, then those would probably be deplorables. I don't think anything comes close to deplorables, but deplorables was like th- within minutes, the most popular thing to to for a certain segment of, of yeah. the voting populace to call themselves because and it was, I, it was remember, thrilling for them. Yeah, sure. And I remember uh, Obama tr- attempted to thread the needle on this when he said, uh, you have to understand, he, he was trying to do something from what I'm proselytizing in this new book, but he did it very uh, haphazardly and ended up causing more harm than good because he said he was attempting to connect on the values of people who disagree with him or people. He was yeah. attempting to say out loud, I understand why you would feel that way. I would feel the same way if I could, if I had experienced what you had experienced, which is a good way to say it. Yeah. But the way he presented it was, uh, and I, I don't remember it verbatim, but it was something along. You have to understand when, when things go wrong, there are people who cling to their guns and their Bibles and it's. I believe it, that was, yeah, that was to, I think an edit mm-hmm. board at, in San Francisco too. Like it was, it, 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 it had bad, but peripheral, there were peripheral elements that, that made that statement even worse. Right. But I, I, I see, I see where, yeah, like the, the point was to say, Hey, I, I, I can understand where these voters come from, but the way he said it to a group of other fellow liberals was, yeah, it was so easy to frame it. Yeah. And, and, and I could, you know, who's going to look for nuance when you're already are hoping that somebody says something that, that you can, that you can hate. Right. And, then, uh, oddly, one of the best examples I've seen of actually doing this properly was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's a great video of him when he's in a a, a crowd of people just sort of uh, shaking hands and kissing babies, and somebody uh, throws an egg and hits him right in the face. One of the greatest and, lines ever. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, he, he wipes it off. He smiles. He laughs. And somebody puts a microphone up to him, and he says, uh, they're like, you know, they want him to like, what do you think? He's like, I think it's great. It's the, this man is he's showing his democ- he's, he's, he's I'm doing a terrible press. So he's he's a uh, he was saying it was awesome. This is democracy. He's showing uh, how he feels about this. I'm so happy that he could do that. I'd love to talk to that man. I mean, that is. Oh, wait, no, you don't. You don't know. He had the the greatest one liner ever. What that guy owes it? me bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so he good. Gets, he right. Gets, he gets hit with an egg and, and he laughs it off and says, that guy owes me bacon. Huge laugh. Everybody, right. everybody's having a good time. You've totally yeah. neutered the fact that you got hit with an egg in front of a bunch of people. You show strength and resolve. Like, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was what, what, what are the greatest political one-liners? Yeah. And I, you know, you know, I, I hate saying Trump uh, even now, like keeping the Trump thing going, but yeah, obviously he was one of the worst that's ever been at this at at connecting uh, or empathizing with the opposition. But, but that wasn't what he run, ran on. That wasn't what people got out of his his whole thing in the first place. Which was, uh, it felt it felt good to have a bully on your side for a while, which is what a lot of people voted for him for and continue to support him for. So there are ways to manipulate this in every which way. It all depends on the politician and what the politician wants to get out of it. If you just want to get elected, you can do the same thing that advertisers do. You just want people to buy the thing. And so it doesn't matter what you say, but if your goal is to actually move a conversation forward, to evolve ideas, to actually care about what a constituency is concerned with and then hear that out and then work on it. It requires techniques that don't necessarily work for getting you elected. And so when we're talking about the actual issues, not the politics, which we focus on here because we love the politics. But if you're talking about the actual issues, then I think this is a very, very good book to read, especially if you are 
trying to figure out whether or not your conversation and contribution to these larger issues is hurting or helping. Uh, David McRaney, of course, the host of You Are Not So Smart, brand new book, one more time. What's the name of it and where can people buy it? It is called How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. All the stuff we talked about here really only makes up about a third of it because we get into all sorts of aspects of that world, including, and you get lots of persuasion techniques that will actually work the day you get the book. You can apply them in on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever else you're having a conversation, even on the holidays and get something actually out of it. The You can get the book anywhere books are sold. Please support your local bookstores if that's a place you'd like to get things, but you can also get it on all the big places like Amazon and throughout. And if you pre-order it, It'd be super helpful for getting the book in as many hands as possible going forward. And I really appreciate that. If you're interested in it, pre-order it on Amazon. I said it, not him. Uh, uh, <laughs> David, uh, uh, because uh, we are friends, I'm going to end this interview despite the fact that I could talk to you for 11 hours about this subject mm-hmm. because I know you have 15 hours of interviews to do to plug this book. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for stopping by. Hey, thank you so much. And I'll be in your neck of the woods very soon. We'll hang out, we'll eat a taco, do all the rest. Hell yeah. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to give David McRaney a high five via Twitter, you can do so by heading to letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. That'll just forward you right to his Twitter. Say, thanks, man. Really enjoyed you on the show. You can email our program, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at px3tweets. And you can get our Twitch, where we stream live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at px3live.com. You can share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy at px3podcast.com. And you can get our merch at politicsmerch.com. Please support us, paypal.me slash payjury with a one-time donation. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send anything physical in the mail to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss during our free podcast schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. V-Guard, Alexis, Neil of Neils, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Double K Ranch, Amanda, Yeo Pinball Shop, John, DB4 Bongo, Niemeister, Nick's Horseless Diner, Catherine, persons familiar with the matter, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. 100 Mile Runner, Edison, up, down, uh, up, sorry, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA start. Dr. G, Headphones, Neil, Charles, Darren, Idris Arslandian. Blue Front and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Diana, Shrill, Shrieks, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, D-Laser, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike who loves, Frank got abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Jen, Adam L, D, Really, Chopper, J-Pink, and Andrew, as well as Josh. You want to join them? Just so simple. Head to take politics seriously. That's it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week for more PX3 goodness. Stay safe this weekend. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh!
Dog and Pony Show Audio.